and welcome to another edition of Book Talk. I'm Stephen Ussery, and I'm happy to welcome Teresa Lim to the program today. Teresa is a journalist originally from Singapore, now living in England. She has recently published in America her debut book, a multi-generational memoir of her family's journey from southern China in the late 19th century up to the Japanese invasion of Singapore during World War II. The book is entitled The Interpreter's Daughter, and it's available in America from Pegasus. Teresa, when do you first remember hearing about your great-aunt Fanny? I think it started when I was a little girl, and I went to primary school. And in my first year, there was another little classmate who had a very expressive face, and she used to talk about the Japanese occupation and the effect it had on members of her family. And she was very dramatic in the telling of the story. She kind of described the torture, probably exaggerated, and then, you know, deaths and all sorts. And I went back home to my mother and I asked if she knew any similar stories for our family. And she mentioned that she had an aunt who had a difficult time, but she didn't tell me very much more. I mean, whatever she told me, she made it sound so boring almost, you know, what happened was really pedestrian almost. I lost interest. But many years later, when I visited her from London, where I was living by then, and visited her in Singapore, and she was in her 80s before she had dementia, she brought out a photograph of her family when she was about 18 years old. And she said, can you help me get copies of this photograph made? Because I'd like to send it to my cousins in the photograph. Many of them were still alive at the time. So that's what I did. And when I looked at the photograph, I was particularly drawn to two figures in the center. My grandmother with her hair pulled up, revealing a very high forehead, very severe hairstyle. And the young woman next to her to her right, who had a very kind of appealing, by which I mean she she had a look of appeal on her face almost. Her head was tilted and she was really looking at the camera as if she was trying to ask for help in some way. And she was very lovely looking. And that was this same aunt of my mother's. And that's when I started asking my mother more about her and tried to find out as much as I could. Now, going back to when you were a child and your classmate was telling you of the Japanese occupation, I'm assuming this was in the the 1960s? Yes, it was. Yes. That was a very momentous time for Singapore as well. That was with the unification with Malaysia and then the devolution. Yes. Going independent again. Do you have any memories of that time or was you just too young for that? Funnily enough, the only thing I remember is when we were joining up with Malaysia we were all taught as, as young children a song which was uh, had the words, let's get together, have a happy time or something like that. You know? and, and I can still remember how the tune goes. And that's really pretty much all I remember. Subsequently, of course, you know, when there was a devolution and Lee Kuan Yew, the prime minister of Singapore then, cried on television, on national television. I mean, that's something I remember, but whether that was from watching it at the time or watching subsequent clips, I'm not so sure. I'll have to admit my sole knowledge 
of Singaporean history comes from the recent graphic novel by Sunny Liu, The Art of Charlie Chan Hock Chai. Are you familiar with this work? I am not familiar with that work. It is it it won many great awards about five years ago for uh, this wonderful comics artist named Sunny Liu, L I E W. And he created a fictional comics artist named Charlie Chan Hock Chai. And from that, he drew cartoons that Charlie Chan Hock Chai himself would have drawn had he existed. And through that, he traces the history of Singapore from the British annexation and colonization through the devolution. That's amazing. And he portrays how a subversive comics artist would have commented on the government when protest would not have been available to normal people and how he tried to give a history of his country that was not the official line. What's the title again, Stephen? The Art of Charlie Chan Huck Chai, C-H-Y-E, I believe. And it's by Sunny Moon. Yes. It's, you know, strange. I've never heard of it. In America, there's a a very prestigious comics award called the Eisner Award, named after Will Eisner. And he won that and several other awards that year for that work. It's one of the greatest works of literature that I've seen, not just comics, but just the inventiveness of telling the story and how he had this character tell the story through sometimes cute little animals talking, but making references toward government as under the radar as possible and still be able to comment on the government without getting in trouble. And fabulous book. That that sounds fabulous. That's maybe why I've not heard of it. I mean, the government is still quite self-protective. I'm going to get a copy of that. Thank you. Yeah, he, he lost uh, his government grants after it was published. Oh, no surprise. That's why I've not heard of it. But highly recommended. Thank you very much. That sounds brilliant. Now, let's go back in the family history because this is a multi-generational story. How did a famine in northern China affect your family in the 19th century? There was a terrible famine in the middle of the 19th century that was the result of the Little Ice Age lingering on in China longer than it did in Europe. And it resulted in a famine in North China that killed 10 million people. But the drought it created in North China, the climatic elements that created drought in North China created flooding in South China where my family lived in the Pearl River Delta. This created conditions that, along with the knock-on effect, presumably of refugees from the north to a degree, made conditions very, very difficult in South China. There was a lot of emigration to places like America and uh, New Zealand, especially with the gold rush. But then, of course, when the Chinese Exclusion Act came into force in America, and that was in 1882, but before that, already the Chinese were looking elsewhere where they could go, the South Chinese. My great-grandfather, with his brother and his father, they emigrated to Singapore, which, you know, wasn't like a brilliant location. It was it was hot. It was um, very dangerous because you had high rates of disease. And I don't think you expected to make as much money as you might from the gold rush. That wasn't that same degree of expectation and hope of financial gain. 
but I suppose they didn't have much of a choice. And from Canton, they took a junk, I think. They could have taken a steamship. There were steamships by then in, in the 1880s that took you to Southeast Asia. But that would have been expensive. They were run by British or European companies, other European companies. A junk was always the cheapest option. Your great-grandfather and his father, they were lucky that they didn't have to do any indentured servitude. They were able to pay their passage, and so they were essentially free when they got there. Absolutely. Indentured servitude was prevalent at the time, and it was slavery in all but name. In uh, Manchu, China, being a civil servant was very well regarded and very competitive for the examinations to get there. So was your great-grandfather Law, was he aspiring to that before they moved to Singapore? I think he was. And this was something I discovered only on being given the genealogy of the Law family, the branch that led down to my great-grandfather, which, of course, I'm very ashamed to say I couldn't read because in Singapore we are educated in English. And I'm not one of those who's terribly good at languages. So I never really became very good at Mandarin Chinese. I had it translated. And until the translation arrived, I assumed that because they were in the Pearl River Delta, they were farmers. And it was only on getting the genealogy and translated, being able to read it, that I found out that my great-grandfather's grandfather was highly educated. And my great-grandfather's father's brothers were extremely well-educated and did very well in the, some of them, in the civil, civil service, in the imperial civil service, which really means something. I mean, I was told that my great-grandfather was very fluent in languages and able to learn English, which is so different from Chinese, to a Chinese who's never heard any kind of European intonation or foreign language. He's grown up completely around people who speak his dialect of Cantonese. I assumed or worked out that he would have received an education too, just as his father had. But that because he left when he was 17, when he left China when he was 17, there wasn't time really to go through the whole system. And he would have had to learn 40,000 different characters? He would have had to start it by learning thousands of characters, you know, and that I'm sure that discipline in sitting down with a book and concentrating would have helped him to learn English. How did he become an interpreter for the British? So he went to a school that taught English that was subsidized heavily by the British. You know, there were hundreds of thousands of Chinese by the time my great-grandfather was in Singapore. And really just a handful of British officers were having to run this successful colony, thriving colony. The main labor force were Chinese, but they couldn't communicate with the Chinese. So they were desperate to have help from Chinese people who knew, who teach them English so that they could communicate because it was nearly impossible to find British people who could speak 
the variety of dialects that was being spoken in Singapore. You see, in Singapore, it wasn't Mandarin Chinese that these laborers from all parts of South China were speaking. They were speaking Hainanese, Cantonese, Fujianese, Hakka, Chiu with all the subtleties of intonation. So you could say one thing and, and mean something completely different. In Mandarin, you say ni hao ma hao, meaning good. But if you say in Cantonese, nei hao or nei hao ma hao, hao means like brandy. So it's a completely oh. different meaning. Are you feeling good? <laughs> yeah, are you wink. feeling good? <laughs> <laughs> so you don't want to make that mistake. <laughs> oh, goodness. So he got into a school that taught him virtually free. English. And it took many years, as you can imagine, you know, to get to the level where you can actually maybe translate very simple conversations with Chinese people so that the British officers could read and understand. I discovered that it was actually quite a complex process to become an interpreter. You didn't just have someone have a little conversation with you in English and say, okay, you can be interpreter. He had to be an intern for a year. He was one of very small number, a handful really, who came from a completely Chinese background, as opposed to those Chinese born in Singapore, of which there were a significant number who might have gone to an English school from very, very young, from eight or nine or 10. You know, he went when he was 17. So it was much more difficult for him to learn. And he was one of very few who would be completely fluent in Chinese, Chinese characters, and also have some fluency in English. Making things more difficult for you as a researcher, those differences in dialects and accents when speaking to the British and for their record keeping, their transliterations would vary so wildly for one person's name. Trying to track him down, there were some problems in trying to find him because his name may have been written in a number of different styles. Yes, absolutely. So his surname in Cantonese is pronounced law. My mother said the character was the character for the word net, as in a fishing net. But it could have been transliterated into English as L-O, L-O-H, L-O-W, L-A-W, L-O-R. <laughs> And the rest of his name, my mother said it was Law Feng Siu. She pronounced it in English, Law Feng Siu. And she just spelt it the way she thought it should be spelled, F-O-O-N-G for Feng, when it could have been spelled by the British as F-U-N-G or something else that I haven't even thought of. So it was difficult. So how did you work around that? It was actually one of these wonderful miraculous moments, which made me think later, looking back, that I was being looked after by somebody up there who wanted their story to be told. Well, I hope up there rather than down there. And when I was in Singapore, after my mother died, to tie up her affairs, I thought, well, I'm probably not coming back to Singapore for a while. So I'll try to do a bit of research into her grandfather, but also I wanted to confirm that the aunt, Fanny, that she said 
went to the Methodist Girls School, which was also the school that I went to subsequently. I started the morning by going to the Methodist Girls School first, and I met an archivist there asking to look through the archives for proof that my great aunt had indeed been a student of the school. The archivist said, you know, you're looking at the 1920s. We won't have anything because people have been borrowing from the archives over the years and they take books away and they don't return them. And she opened uh, this register book and she just runs her finger down very quickly to say, it's useless, you know, just forget it. You're not going to find her. And then she suddenly said, oh, there she is. Fanny Law. And I looked at that line. Next to her name, there was an entry for the parent or the guardian of Fanny Law. And there was his name, Lo Kuan Yi, L-O-K-U-A-N-Y-I. And I thought, I don't recognize that name. Because my mother said her grandfather, who was Fanny's father, was Law Feng Xiu. But I took the name down. I thought, well, might have been a relative, you know, maybe a cousin. Maybe her father was away working at the time and somebody else was her guardian. And I had took down the name and then I finished with the archives. I went off to lunch with friends. Then after that, I went to the National Library in Singapore where I was directed to something called the Singapore and Straits Directory, which has lists of government employees from the 19th century. That was a publication that was published in the 19th century. I looked roughly for the years when I thought my great-grandfather would have become employed by the British. And eventually, I found a name that was Lo Kuan Yi, spelled a little bit differently. Quan was Q-U-A-N, but it was undoubtedly for the same name. And the thing is, if I hadn't been to the Methodist Girls School earlier that morning and taken down this name, Lo Quan Yi, I wouldn't have recognized it. I would simply have thought, oh, well, I tried. Hmm. I haven't found him. And it was later, with the genealogy in my hand translated, that I discovered that in my great-grandfather's family, like many educated Chinese men of the time, they had three names, their birth name, their style name, and their art name. So you were given a name at birth, which is what you use until you grew up. And then you, you, know, you had certain interests, certain hobbies, and you affected another name that reflected those interests. That was his style name, Lo Feng Xiu, and Lo Kuan Yi was his birth name, and that's how I found him. And you had mentioned that for his children, children of the same generation often shared a name. Is it Shung Chung for your your great uncles? Yes. But for great grandfather and his brother, they shared Quang because his brother was Quang Quan. Yes, and uh, they could not have been more different in temperament when it came to learning, but. His brother was very successful in business. Extremely. His brother was an academic, but he was a very good businessman. And he became a property developer. There is a wonderful area in Singapore still called Ansiang Hill, 
and it's become very trendy because the terrace houses along there, which are about kind of 19th century in style, many of them were built by him. And he lived there for quite a long time, although during the Japanese occupation, he moved. Your grandfather saw his brother making all of this money and the civil service working for the British was not providing for his family. No. And that's when he decided to leave the civil service or the colonial service and went into business with his brother. It was in property to begin with because my great-grandfather's contact at the department in the civil service for which he worked originally would have been very useful. It was called the Chinese Protectorate. And they dealt with everything Chinese, all Chinese affairs. So presumably they would have known, you know, which areas of Singapore were mixed up for development or were going to be released by the government for development. And that would have been useful information he could have got hold of and that would have benefited his brother and he in their business. But later, I'm afraid to say that my great-grandfather really maybe didn't find that that was earning enough money for him. And he then switched to bidding and getting gambling licenses, which could make you good money too. And sadly, these gambling licenses were in places like Borneo or Malaysia, then Malaya, in plantations or tin mines, you know, remote areas where indentured labor was used. And the laborers really had a miserable time and they were encouraged to spend their money on opium, which usually was sold to them by their employer. Or in the case of gambling, the um, British understood that these laborers didn't want to work in remote areas if they didn't have some sort of outlet, some sort of pleasure. And so therefore, gambling was what was allowed to them. And there were franchises, they were farmed out, and my great-grandfather had one of these gambling licenses and made some of his money that way. One of the reasons he felt compelled to leave the service and, and go into this line of business was your great-aunt Fanny came along, and she was what in some cultures they call a late lamb, a child that's born many years after the closest sibling. And how did she fit into the family? She was like a lucky charm. After she was born, quite shortly after, Henry Ford's tea model came into production and a lot of rubber was needed for rubber tires. And by then, Malaya was producing quite a lot of rubber and rubber production was being expanded in places like Borneo. It was booming. It was a booming industry. And my great-grandfather profited from that. Now, as you mentioned, she had gone to the Methodist school in Singapore. What did her family think when she became a Christian? The Chinese are quite pragmatic on the whole. Certainly, I think from my observations, quite a lot of emigrant Chinese, the ones in Southeast Asia anyway, are quite pragmatic. I don't think there was ever any fuss about her becoming Christian. There was much more alarm that she didn't want to marry and she wanted to crystallize that commitment not to marry by becoming a sworn spinster which was actually a recognized status that you achieved by making a public oath to be celibate for the rest of your life. And so it's kind of like being a Catholic nun in order to live a life in the commercial sphere and work outside the home. Yes. It's a very interesting area. 
the kind of feminism that was beginning to bubble up in South China in those days. So you had, I hope you won't be too confused by this, but you had sworn spinsters who were working women because in the 19th century, the silk industry took off in China, in the Pearl River Delta specifically. There were so many little silk factories and they preferred to employ single women because they had hands that were unroughened by housework. They could tease the silk threads off the cocoons. So these women were suddenly employed in quite a big numbers and paid very well. And these women mm. decided they wanted to change the hitherto unaccepted status of singlehood. They wanted to be single and accepted as adults and be allowed independent lives rather than be shunted away in the back of the family home. You know, everyone's ashamed of them. They're not allowed to do this, not allowed to do that, and sort of cursed. They kind of rewrote history for themselves, but they were very practical women. But then you also had what's called faithful maidens, who were women from farther back in Chinese history, who were slightly sort of proto-feminists of a sort. And for them, they decided that if their husbands died and they were being forced into, to marry another man, or if their fiancés had died and their families then wanted to match them with another man, that they would rather take their own lives. Because their families were worried about this, their families quite often allowed them to live outside the family home, maybe in an outhouse or something, and just carry on. Another freedom would be one that's unwanted in the sense of not being married and having children. It has the potential to untether a woman from her family lineage and the veneration of ancestors. So what did they do to try to preserve their line and a family's story and memories and practices? So in the past, when you didn't have much choice, stay a widow without children, might adopt a boy because it was the male line through which your lineage carried on so that he would grow up and his family would worship your spirit, so to speak, and provide for it, remember you and provide for you and you would never be forgotten. In the past, it, you could do that. Or in the case of the sworn spinsters, because they had income, they initially married ghost husbands who were deceased men, young men, it, doesn't, it didn't matter, I suppose, if they were young or old, but they were deceased and unmarried. Usually from, let's say, if they're from a poor family, these uh, sworn spinsters could give money to the family and ask to be married to the deceased son and then adopt sons in their now married state. But later on, with the, the silk industry taking off in the 19th century, those single women in the Pearl River Delta were earning so much money that sometimes single-handedly supporting their farming families so they could rewrite the rules and they could say, we don't want to marry ghost husbands because there are not that many dead young men anyways that you could all end up marrying. And we don't want to marry at all. We don't want to get into that. And we want to still be considered viable entities Fanny had seen the negative examples of marriage and its effect on her older sisters. That's right. Her eldest sister, my grandmother, had married for love, which was pretty unusual at the time because young women were match-made. But she'd met her brother's colleague, who was a teacher like they were, and fallen in love with him. 
and he had fallen in love with her. And she insisted on marrying him, even though he was very, very poor. You know, he didn't earn very much as a teacher. But later on, when he took up a job working for my great-grandfather in British North Borneo, he took a concubine and she couldn't accept this. So she left him, which was totally unusual at the time. When concubines were an accepted fact of marriage, but, you know, she was unhappy at the outcome of a marriage. Fanny's middle sister married in a match into a very wealthy family to a young man, a bit of a wastrel. That's how his own family described him. She wasn't very happy either, I don't think. But she kept her under control. But she was very fertile. She was pregnant every year. And by sort of the fourth year, she was pretty tired of that. And she tried to abort the baby unsuccessfully and died. So both examples of Fanny's sisters marrying were not happy examples. In her pursuing the sworn spinsterhood, she was going to take care of your grandmother, Virtue, and her children. Yes. I believe that that was what also helped her make the decision to pursue sworn spinsterhood because if she was independent she could make decisions that could benefit her sister so if she had married she couldn't ever say to her husband can you look after my sister and her children too but she decided to have an English education she went to school at the age of 17 to English primary school so that she could one day have a career as a professional person in Singapore with no husband to say, no, you can't have a career or you can't have a profession. She could work and she could provide for her sister and her sister's children. Now, while Japan had adopted some Western techniques and had raised as an imperial power of its own at this time, there was conflict in Chinese society on whether to adopt some Western attitudes and approaches toward business. How did that play out in your family? Was there a Western faction? Was there a traditional faction? I don't think there was a Western and traditional faction as such. But I think living in a British colony, they had absorbed some Western values. So for instance, when my grandmother left her husband, which, as I said earlier, was you, you don't leave your husband because he's got a concubine. It's not really an acceptable thing to do. When she left her husband, she was taken back into the family home, which is completely unusual because at the time, Chinese people believed that when a daughter married out, you never took her back, however miserable she was, even if she was being beaten by her mother-in-law and her husband and came back to you, you know, sobbing. You didn't take her back because if you did, she would be a curse on the family. But I think that Western, not Western education, but having absorbed some Western values, they were willing to cross that bridge and take her back, you know, throw out the Chinese superstition. But my great uncles, so Fanny's brothers, they were educated in Chinese, but they would have been completely aware of the sweeping changes in political thought that was going on in China at the time. So you had uh, movements which believed that women had a voice, peasants had a voice, that in fact it was Confucianism and Confucianist superstitions that were holding China back from becoming modern. And so eventually World War II starts and the Japanese 
prove brutally efficient and were very much underestimated by the British. Absolutely. I have some sympathy for the British not really wanting to stare an increasingly strong enemy in the face because world war in Europe was devastating. It was just easier to think that the Japanese were not very well ed educated or not as well up on armaments, although they could build planes. These planes could never be a threat to Western planes. It was much easier to underestimate the enemy, which is what they did. It was much more comforting to underestimate the enemy, because if you didn't, then you'd have to make some very difficult decisions with how you balance up arming up in Europe as against arming up in Southeast Asia. Now, it seems today there is more critical thought than there's ever been about the role of colonization and empire and it effects on the world. What are your feelings about living in a former colony and then moving to the country which was its colonizer and how you fit in there now? Gosh, that's a difficult question. It is a constant source of fascination, I suppose. Moving here, if I can be very frank, for the first time, because I, mo I moved when I was nearly 40. I'd live a long time in Southeast Asia, not always in Singapore, sometimes in Hong Kong and sometimes in Malaysia. You never had people removing rubbish who were white. So that, that was the first thing I noticed. And yes, that, that, that does make you think slightly. And yes, you know, as a journalist in Singapore, sometimes, you know, you go off and you interview sort of British chief executives or whatever, or managers, managers. And, and some of them would be quite sort of dismissive. But to be fair, I mean, that generation of people who had been in the colonies for a long time, they were probably sexist as well as, you know, maybe vaguely racist or whatever. They had all sorts of terrible attributes, which were not solely racist. Having come here, it's been interesting because I think at first I carried with me the kind of narrative of being in the colony and being that the British would be very, have ingrained attitudes against other races. And of course, there still are. But equally, I've found living here that it's quite often your own expectations color the narrative. And that actually, the people in London, certainly in the big cities, are, are much more forward looking than one expects. And certainly, the new generation of young British, very much more forward looking, in all ways, much more accepting of diversity and how colonization might have been a bad thing and not something they want to be proud of or brag about. Almost too much the other way, because not everything, in my experience anyway, was, was bad. Does that answer your question? Or were you? I think it's interesting to hear your thoughts on it. And also wondering how, since your family had immigrated to Singapore and they weren't a family that had a multi-centuries-long history in Singapore before, before the British came, it seems like that would kind of influence and, and change the way your family thought about things as well, because your family did move there after it was already colonized. Yes, and they moved there because it was colonized. I mean, it, it wasn't um, a thriving port before colonization. Colonization created the country that I come from. And, you know, the prime minister who transformed the fortunes of Singapore was educated in Britain, as was his wife. And he then instituted a system of education in Singapore that included women. 
that were included girls. And I've benefited from that. If I grown up in rural China, perhaps I would never have been educated. It's tremendously complex and not in any way simple on how we can view all these things. Absolutely. So beyond Singapore and Britain both being islands where it rains a lot, <laughs> are there any other similarities there besides those two things? Similarities? No. <laughs> it was an absolute shock arriving in Britain for the first time, experiencing my first winter. At the time, we were living in Malaysia, and I'd been warned by English friends there that it gets dark early in, in Britain in the winter, but I wasn't expecting it to be getting dark by 3.30 in the afternoon. <laughs> it's pretty depressing. Yeah, living close to the equator, you get those 12-hour days pretty much year-round. You do, you do. And so what, what was the summer like for you seeing, you know, the sun coming up at 3.30 in the morning instead? Well, I mean, usually I have the, the, the blinds down and um, I, I'm not up at 3.30 in the morning. But it was interesting experiencing four seasons because, of course, you don't get that in Singapore. You just have two in Singapore, right? The rainy what, season. Rain and, and the, no rain. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and by the way, I should point out that the rain in Singapore is completely different from the rain here. Here it's in Britain, it's drip, drip, drip the entire day or several days for several days. In Singapore, you get the storm and then it clears. You're right, during the monsoons, it's pretty, pretty heavy for a prolonged period. But it's dramatic rain, you know, it's not drip, drip, drip. There was just the Singapore Grand Prix took place this previous weekend, and we got to see the rain there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, they've got to switch to their special tires and everything else. Yeah, it's quite interesting. Did you happen to watch the race just to see the skyline and, and the city? I have had the good luck of years ago being um, present at one of the Singapore Grand Prix. I didn't watch it this time, but I do watch a series on Formula One. And when the race is in Singapore, it is nice looking at the skyline. But I also remember when I'm looking at that, I don't get too nostalgic. Because when I was at the Grand Prix in Singapore, it was so hot and humid that you could barely enjoy. I mean, it's very humid in Singapore. And it's very, very warm, even at night. I was, think it was 30 degrees centigrade and 80% humidity at yes. race time. And they were wondering why the track wasn't drying. I'm going, because the air is saturated, <laughs> there's nowhere for it to go. No, no. I really admire the drivers, you know, getting into a car with all their protective gear on in those conditions. So having worked as a journalist and now then taking on a book-length project, was it different for you to have to create a work that had such a sustained narrative all the way through it? Completely different. I was, for some time, I was actually working as a journalist for a newspaper. So newspaper articles, they're about 800 words. Sometimes write a feature and it's 1,000 or 2,000 words. 2,000 words is considered quite long. So to be sustaining the, the narrative for about seventy to 80,000 words was difficult. It's a completely different way of thinking and a different way of structuring. I've learned a lot doing writing this book. You do address it in a way in the book that with your Aunt Fanny being a sworn spinster, the possibility of kind of being forgotten in the family and that, and now she has 
the opportunity to be remembered by thousands of people around the world. Absolutely. That's a, a wonderful way that you put it. It's my hope. Single women of her generation, if they were traditional Chinese, believed that when they died, if they weren't remembered, they had no lineage to fall back on, no lineage extending from them to fall back on, that they became wandering ghosts, you know, spirits that roamed the earth in a kind of eternal purgatory. And it makes me very, very happy to think that it's not just my family who have now read about her. Some of them ha had never heard of her. It's not just my family who have read of, of her, but other people. And so she is in a safe place. And also, I've always wondered if my mother's reluctance to really describe Fanny to me was partly guilt, a little bit of guilt, perhaps, that she never fulfilled her aunt's hope that she would marry, that she would be a sworn spinster and would then always honour her aunt's memory and that she hadn't done that. And if she ever did feel she owed her, uh, she was in debt, she was too fanny. I hope that I've repaid that debt by writing this book. And in completing this book-length project, has it made you want to do another book-length project? Yes, I do. But bearing in mind the structure of a book versus an extended essay, I'll have to think of the structure and the form very carefully. But it would be a, the story of my father's side of the family, whom I also don't know all that much about, but who are also very interesting. Well, Teresa, it has been such a joy and a pleasure to talk with you today. Thank you so very much for writing The Interpreter's Daughter and sharing it with all of us. Stephen, thank you very much. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Teresa Lim is the author of The Interpreter's Daughter, which is published by Pegasus. I'm Stephen Usry, and this is Book Talk. Thank you for joining us today. Book Talk is produced in the studios of FM 89.3 WYPL Memphis, a service of the Memphis Public Library, a division of the City of Memphis. Book Talk is copyrighted by the Memphis Public Library, all rights reserved.